Hi, and welcome to I Want What She Has. Can you hear me? Yes, a show that celebrates women. And their stories. I'm Shauna Falana. And I'm Teresa Widman. On today's show, I'll be welcoming special guest Valeria Georgiou, who is an attorney and an activist who's incorporating restorative justice into her work. Nice. And I have a pre-recorded interview with Kay Sarah. She is in a project called Streetlight Boutique in Brooklyn, New York. And she is also a DJ and raising two boys, homeschooling. She's incredible. Excellent. All these fabulous women doing their thing. (laughs) So where are you at, Shauna? Well, is my connection good? I'm in Santa Barbara. Um, you sound a little bit muffled, um, but you're not breaking up. All right. Well, you know. I'll put that back in, but I, uh, you're in Santa Barbara. Yes, yeah, I am in Santa oh, Barbara. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, and how's the tour going? It's going really well. We, uh, we're only like a third of the way through. So hopefully my, my cell phone connections and signals will just get better and better. <laughs> yes, they will. We can make it How happen. are you doing out there? We were talking earlier and you talked about your uh, writing a book. I, I am. love hearing you say that. I love hearing you say that you got back to that. So how's that been? It's been hard. It's been very hard. I was talking to Sari Botten, who has the Kingston Writer Studio, because it was like maybe a month or so ago, she and I kind of did this 10 days of writing a thousand words a day for 10 days. And I was like, you know, I did that and it just seemed like no problem. And she's like, yeah, but you didn't have to write on the same subject every day. And like to be you know, really focused on writing the same thing every day, keeping the story going, like staying connected to the story. And especially when you have a busy day and it's like you've got an hour or a half an hour to try to squeeze something in. You don't have the luxury of like wondering what the plot should be doing. But it's a really good practice. It's like um, it's kind of like going to the gym for writing. Mm. And just being okay with it not being perfect at all. And knowing that, you know, once I, that whole idea is that, I don't know if I said this last episode, but NaNoWriMo, it's National Novel Writing Month. And so you write 50,000 words in, in the month of November. And wow. so, you know, by the end of November, I'll have 50,000 words written, which is technically, it could be a short novel, um, or it might be just part of a larger novel. Um, but uh, yeah, it feels good. And it's, it's giving me an opportunity to explore some deep concepts that are kind of bubbling up for me around women and the role of women historically, how our stories have been told or not told or mistold and um, kind of the me too movement and all of those things. But it's in a, it's like a fantasy uh, genre, you know, it's like involving knights and, which is not fantasy. I mean, medieval times did exist, but <laughs> there are some elements of fantasy incorporated into it. 
something that occurred to me when we were talking earlier, by the way, can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, is that, you know, you sort of put your book down for a little while and then all these things have happened since you put your book down. Mm. And I'm wondering if the timing is just incredible because maybe everything that we're experiencing as women right now will fall into and fold into your book, you know? Yes. Well, it is, it is, (laughs) you know, maybe it's... you know, who knows if this book will ever reach the eyes of anyone else aside from Ben, who will will look at it at one point. But, um, you know, it, it is largely a, a lot of thoughts that I have about things that have bubbled up about women. And the irony is that the one of the main characters in the book is is the main character from the book I started in 2012 or 2011, right? I started a young, well, what I thought was going to be a novel, but ended up becoming like a young adult novel series um, that I haven't finished yet. But one of the characters in that book is the the character in this book. And so she, she played a totally different role in that other story. And I'm really, this book was more about me really understanding her as a woman and you know in she comes from a a poem from um an old english author and as a female knight in that story she represented chastity which is like a huge theme in women's history um you know how there was this expectation of chastity and how if you were chaste that meant you were like an amazing woman that that was the the essence of your value and so there's really a lot to play with there is all i'm going to say right now yeah absolutely mm-hmm. i mean and and i just want to touch on the fact that <clears throat> the the thought that i was getting at which is that the time is might be perfect that you're actually picking up writing your book again um, and and thinking about all the times that we beat ourselves up for not doing the creative thing and we have to put it down for a while and then we feel guilty about it and all the emotions that we put ourselves through um, during that time and then when you finally get back to it and you start working on it again maybe realizing that all that time that you put it down actually was like really, really important. I love, yeah, I really like that perspective, Shauna. That's very wise. And I think it might be pretty on point. Good. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, you and I wanted to touch on, we sort of like during the week, you and I send each other articles and we send each other, um, podcast to listen to and I have them up here on my screen um I sent you uh this American Life podcast called but that's what happened (laughs) (laughs) and then uh you just sent me an article this morning uh hashtag me too will not survive unless we recognize toxic femininity (laughs) um so, yeah, I really, I thought maybe we could uh, touch on both of them, and I can definitely link them in the show notes, but the toxic max, the toxic femininity, I almost said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, 
because it's masculinity in our female. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> that one, I, I know. But that one I would love to actually um, spend some more time on when, you know, at a different point, because I think it's brilliant to actually show both sides of the spectrum. Um, but what you got a big one, you got a big takeaway from, but that's what happened from This American Life. And yeah. 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 And, I, you know, I I know it's it's it, too, is a longer, very difficult conversation. But the essence of it is the first part of the show, at least, is a woman who had left the Mormon church. And she talks about an experience that she had, which was part of their their church practices was that they had to sit with a bishop if ever they they basically sinned and go and confess their sins in a sense. And the very personal aspect of the line of questioning that went to any level of intimacy that that the the children, it was anywhere from 12 to 18 that you had to do this. And, you know, so that's the essence of it, which is, I mean, quite fascinating to somebody who's not a Mormon to, you know, religion in and of itself is a fascinating subject to me. And I'm and I have a very biased opinion. I mean, I I struggle a lot with organized religion and and just sort of more, you know, there's there's a lot of beauty and there's a lot of good in it, but there's also a ton of destruction. And I tend to be a little bit hyper focused on the destructive elements of it. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But right. it, it was so interesting, you know, as it relates to femininity in this story, she was telling about how when they were younger, they would sing church songs. And the one of the church songs that like stood out to them was this song about how like, when I grow up, I'm going to be a mom and I'm going to be a mom with three to four kids and I'm going to have the greatest job being a mom and I'm going to have seven or eight kids. And it's, I mean, <laughs> it's my own personal <laughs> rendition and of it. And it really does. It literally sounds exactly like that. <laughs> Which is, you know, it, I'm reading The Handmaid's Tale right now. Yes, I'm a little behind on it, but I didn't watch the show. But the 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 book is kind of fascinating. And it was just strangely similar to that. And I don't want to offend any Mormons because I realize like that's just my very outsider perspective. Um, but it's fascinating. So we can leave it there. If that sounds even remotely interesting to you, we'll link <laughs> to it in the show notes and you can go and listen to it on your own. Fair enough. I mean, I would just add in that. Um, I don't know. I just felt like it was like really disturbing. And, you know, uh, yeah, I think it could be healing for any woman that's like been involved with organized religion and had to meet with a priest or, you know, a pastor or whatever and talk about their sexual experiences. Um, I think that that was the, that was the one takeaway that I got mm -hmm. was that women were actually, um, were, you know, subjected to this type of questioning and it did get out of hand. And I think, you know, it women does, and men, I mean, women, women and men. Oh, yeah. yeah. But mm -hmm. I mean, this is focused on, you know, these women primarily. But yes, women and men. Um, but I do think that it, you know, being so young and having this be some of the first experiences you have with talking to an adult about, you know, this part of your life, it does like stay with you for the rest of your life. And that was something that seemed like it was very cathartic 
for people that have had this sort of experience to talk about it because thus the article is called, but that's what happened, implying the fact that they weren't uh, believed. Right. So if, if you do need to um, feel validated, <laughs> male or female, <laughs> definitely we'll link to this and you can listen to it. Maybe they'll get something out of it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and then you wrote in for me to read the Me Too will not survive unless we recognize toxic femininity. So did you want to touch on that at all? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's a big subject and it's probably controversial. um, Or at least, you know, there are going to be people people that disagree with it. There are parts of it that I don't necessarily align with. And so we're going to give everyone who's listening the homework assignment to read it. We'll link to it and... And if you have thoughts on it, we'd love to hear them. But the essence of it is really trying to get women to see that they're not perfect, you know, that, and, and that for women to be sort of kind of just taking the upper hand in, in situations. And, and maybe that's an unfair at, um, way of describing what's happening, but it can be perceived that way that, that, um, you know, women can do no wrong, um, you know, and and men are the ones that are that are harming women, and that women never harm men. Um, you know, it asks a couple questions at the beginning of the article, like raise your hand if you've ever behaved badly or and blamed it on your period. Yeah, which I personally feel like that is a valid reason you're on drugs. Um, but anyways, um, but there are a list of things. Um, you know, raise your hand if you've acted helpless in the face of an unpleasant, if not physically demanding task, like dealing with a wild animal that's gotten inside your house, you know, and I, it's like the whole women's lib thing where we want to, we want to be fully independent and liberated, but yet then we also want to depend on men for historically traditional masculine tasks. One of the things too that, I mean, I don't relate to this because I wasn't involved, but I've definitely heard of it are women trapping men into marriage and whatnot because they're pregnant or, you know, yeah. pretending that they're pregnant. Yeah. Um, that is also in this article. It's just a bad behavior, yeah. you know, and I, the, the, the big takeaway for me, um, and it really is just about uh, where we're at right now as a culture is taking responsibility for your side, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I love being called out. I just love it. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know if you don't like being called out. I don't know what's going to be helpful to get people there to like want to be called out on their stuff. But I, I feel like when I'm called out on my stuff, like I get down to the nitty gritty of what life is all about for me, which is, you know, working on myself like that is what I choose to call what my life is you know it's like Mm -hmm. that this is a big educational experience and I want to have fun and do creative things but I also want to do the work that I feel like is is involved with being here on this planet so if uh I don't know if that's of interest I'd be curious too to hear like what what women related to in this article because it's it's designed to be like a big call out, you know, especially from the very beginning, raise your hand if, Mm -hmm. and then she just lists all these things. And I was like, you know, mentally raising my hand on some of these for sure. So I loved it. Yeah. 
No, I think it's a it's an important part of the overall conversation. It doesn't mean, you know, the point of the article is not to say Me Too is bad um, at all. It's just, you know, what do we do with it and and how do we actually move forward? Um, and how do we keep it alive? I mean, that's what she's saying. Yeah. She's like, this Me Too movement will not survive if we don't basically keep our side of the street clean, you yeah. know? And I... Mm-hmm. I think that's great because the more we say, the more even men can say, like, for other men, to model for other men, I did this thing and, and make an apology and, you know, model to that behavior of, like, taking responsibility and making an amends, you know, mm-hmm. and, like, moving forward. Like, this is what needs to happen. It's not about denying your past. It's about embracing it and finding a way to talk about it so that we can all move forward. Right. I mean, I think one of the big hurdles is that we're creating a culture that is not forgiving and, and it's okay. Like some people may not be able to forgive somebody who's directly harmed them. That's, that's okay. But, but as a culture, I think that we have to be more forgiving of people's recognition of their wrongs. Um, and creating a safe space so that they can be open with themselves and honest and not feel like they're going to be completely, you know, um, removed from society or their social circles. And so that's, I think like, that's the essence. Exactly. All righty then. So, so ladies, gentlemen, feel free to chime in on it. Send us a note, um, uh, comment on our Instagram account. We'll link to all of those things. And we're going to hear a little clip from She's Beautiful When She's Angry. And then we're going to welcome my guest, Valeria. And we'll be back with Shauna at the end of the show. See you later. I've been very interested to see the amount of publicity that has gone to the women's liberation movement in just the last two or three months. We couldn't get coverage anywhere except in a very joking fashion in 1966. Everybody thought it was a colossal joke. I think people aren't laughing anymore. They recognize the seriousness of it. At the now National Convention for 1970, Betty Friedan gets up and gives her speech. And much to our shock, she announced that there would be a women's strike on August 26, 1970, the 50th anniversary of women's right to vote. When we take to the street in Boston and in New York and in Chicago, and in Atlanta, and in Florida, and in California, and in street. And everyone was like, oh my God, now what do we do? So Betty Friedan tells the press, 50,000 women would march in New York City. Every week we would have a notice in the village voice. These younger women, they would pour into now, and we would plan this march and strike. Don't iron while the strike is hot was the slogan And we took this poster and distributed it all over town. And I said, how are we going to get 50,000 to march? And Pat said, we'll take over the Statue of Liberty. And I said, how can you do that? The Puerto Ricans did last year, and they're in jail. So they cut two huge banners, 40 feet long. We had had the banners rolled up in their jeans, you know, and they were walking like they were crippled. We got to the island, 
So we had a group that was going to start demonstrating. I was going to go up, up those winding stairs and stairs at the top one where we were putting Women of the World Unite. I just remember the wind was so strong. And the next thing we knew, the guys caught on. By this time, there were helicopters. And then Mayor Glancy called and he said, let the women be, let them alone. It was a sensation. It went around the world. Time Magazine picked it up, the Italians, the French. It was fabulous. Can you imagine women of the world, you know? All that publicity helped. here and I'm sitting with Valeria Georgiou who is in full disclosure a good friend of mine um, so I know very well all of the amazing things that this woman does Valeria is an activist and attorney who has studied environmental and civil rights law and she's also studied restorative justice as, and is incorporating that into her law practice right now and into other things and she's also a fellow with the Sustainable Economies Law Project. Did I say that right? Yeah, Law Center. Law Center. Center as a solo practitioner here in Kingston. So I'm excited that I, that I was able to get you because I know that you're very, very busy. Um, I thought, you know, as a former practicing attorney myself, I thought maybe I would start out with the question about what made you want to get into the practice of law? Yeah, well, I was in undergrad, uh, started out at SUNY Binghamton and saw the PERG and all its work it does. I got involved with the New York Public Interest Research Group as an intern and slowly got wrapped up in the global justice movement as an organizer fighting sweatshops abroad um, in manufacturing. And, and as an immigrant, I, I also related to some of the global justice issues. So I was working, fighting the World Trade Organization, which we saw at that time was subverting the role of government to regulate pollutants and protect people in the environment. So I was in Seattle in the Battle of 99, and I was organizing with the Vermont Mobilization for Global Justice, fighting the free trade area of the agree agreement as well, um, all to hold governments accountable to their role as guardians of the people on the earth. So I ended up going to Vermont Law School for a master's in environmental law, and at a National Lawyers Guild rebellious lawyering conference, I saw Morris Dees speak from the Southern Poverty Law Center so inspiringly about the work he was doing, fighting to save people's lives on death row. And I saw speakers who were suing corrupt dictators and under the Alien Tort Claims Act or working on behalf of farm workers' rights. So I, I realized it was just a form of amped up activism in a way. And I ended up going to Vermont Law School for, for the full deal. Um, and ultimately my goal was to protect indigenous people's rights so that they could continue practicing their culture 
and share that with us as we learn from them, protecting the environment and the people through traditional wisdom and more sustainable life ways, because I didn't see that techno fixes were going to actually change um, how we related to the earth to protect ourselves. I wonder if you know what made you drawn into that protecting indigenous peoples and the land. Is there anything that you can connect to in your in your past and your history that made that be the thing that kind of I was naturally drawn to it as a teenager. I remember going to a bookstore and reading a book by Starhawk on paganism and you know a lot of people don't think of indigenous European traditions, but that's what paganism is before the Inquisition when thousands <laughs> perhaps I don't know exactly of witches were burned for their knowledge of plant medicine and and their strength um, by by um, the mainstream culture then um, you know that that was what drew me and as I I, I saw similarities with um, I think in undergrad I, I went to a sweat lodge for the first time and spoke to some of the local native people in in, in SUNY Binghamton and, and after that just started speaking more with them and and you know, saw their presence and their way as very peaceful and harmonious, and I was drawn to that naturally, to to learn more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, th- thinking back to like you know when I graduated law school and just sort of feeling, I I too went to law school thinking with the idea that I wanted to do civil rights law. It was like studying the 60s, the movement of the 60s and and you know, all the whole civil rights movement. I just thought this is, you know, this is what I want to spend my time doing. But the reality was it was very hard for me to find work doing that when I got out of law school. So that's a whole other story. But I wonder what your experience was, you know, what did you end up doing and and where were their struggles and rewards? Yeah, so I I really had focused on a mission early on. I, I think when I was 19, I recognized that I had this important purpose. At the time, I felt this the weight of the world on my shoulders that we were the ones that had to save the environment. I mean, I I you know, I was cleaning the forest of garbage when I was 11 years old on my own with my friends, you know, on <laughs> Earth Day to celebrate. So so or 12. So so I just I I, I, I was focused early on um, and and I I did a lot of I guess I just did a lot of volunteer work as a as an undergrad um, I worked part-time before going to law school so that part-time I could organize as an activist and and I really believed in in, in what I was doing so Along the way in law school, I centered my studies around indigenous people's rights, around environmental law, protecting sacred sites. And ultimately, when I graduated, I didn't do too much of a search for work. Uh, I guess I was lucky mm-hmm. <laughs> that way. Um, but I did find what I thought was a, a good fit for me working as a farm workers' rights attorney at South Jersey Legal Services. And those were indigenous peoples in this country whose rights needed to be protected here and now. And I really enjoyed going to the farms to do outreach. I went to their farm worker festivals and saw their Mayan celebrations and dances and and ceremonies. So to me, it was a way to help concretely some of the indigenous peoples who have been displaced by the free trade area agreement 
which uh, brought in, raised the prices of corn and displaced corn growers in, in, in Mexico. And then they had to cross the border to work here under the table because they could no longer compete with the subsidized U.S. corn. So um, despite, um, you know, a few jobs created by, um, by the, 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 the factories across the border. Um, one thing that just popped into my head and, and actually talking to a friend of mine who works at the Worker Justice Center here in Kingston, are some of the hurdles that, that you have to overcome when working with, with people who are largely feeling threatened? You know, when I was a prosecutor, it was like trying to find witnesses who didn't want to testify because that meant that their life was going to be threatened, you know? And I wonder if you can remember, it, you know, if you had to go through any of those kind of difficulties and, and how does that affect your ability to practice law? Fear is a real thing. <laughs> and I, 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 I have seen fear affect some of my clients uh, in the indigenous population. <clears throat> um, so, uh, and I've, I've I've had to navigate that with them as well. Um, so, let's see. Um, I mean, I wonder if does that does that help connect the journey to restorative justice work? Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking along those lines that that some of some of work my work integrating restorative justice is being an authentic human it's not having that guise of being a professional that you know restorative justice seeks to break those barriers and 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 really realize that you can't just live in your gated community and help the people in the poorer areas and think that you're doing the work and then go back home to your nice environment you really need to actually step out of your role as a professional and look at the bigger picture work on the the social justice issues as well as you know relate person to person with with your community member you know you can't have that artificial divide so yeah so i've i've done that with some of the indigenous peoples i've worked with i've 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 told them i'm an immigrant i was displaced from my culture and i i came here because of my political refugee grandfather and i had a grandfather that was in labor camp for five years and died as a result and we lost our land and our businesses and and now I'm suddenly here and we have intergenerational PTSD that we're dealing with so I know what you're dealing with and I can't know exactly what it's like but you know I also have trust issues I also have trauma <laughs> and 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 you know I understand there's there's going to be a lot of um issues in the way we work together and I accept that and as long as we talk about it and are real with it and and hold each other accountable to it and try to navigate that together then we can be productive together and and um and I try to share my personal story and honor their story and encourage you know strength building through through um also um you know praising and and reminding people that that we're we're up against a huge system here <laughs> it's 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 hard work um so yeah i've seen i've seen it and i'm not always successful i still have to work through my own stuff as well to get to that place um i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that um you know i guess where did the just your your and to whatever extent you feel comfortable obviously talking about your personal family history but where did that information come through to you? Did did was it just talked about in the family what your grandparents went through and what the family history went through? How does how does the family um, 
How has the family worked with that and tried to integrate knowing all of that history? Well, it's common for my studies on PTSD in my restorative justice certificate program. Um, I, I learned quite a bit that it's common to not talk about it in right. families with PTSD. So I didn't grow up hearing anything from my parents. You know, it's, it's common that the focus is on comfort, on safety and peace as much as possible. And, and you don't talk about these triggering issues. So I, I heard a little bit from my grandmother who experienced it more as an adult, not growing up as a child like my parents in, in fear. Um, but I also read a few books about it. I went back to Romania. A lot of indigenous peoples encouraged me to get in touch with my own culture and my history to be able to relate better to them. So I did that. I went back to Romania a few times in my father's hometown and reading books and talking to family friends. And I heard stories like, you you know, my grandmother said one in three people were informants. And if you, you had to agree about what you talked about when you left, if you were in a group, because then people would appear to ask you what you talked about. And if you were a dissident, they might invite you to headquarters and radiate you for an hour while you, um, while you thought you were just sitting there for a talk with the, with the government head, agents. And they, they would tell you not to talk badly about the government. And then they would die six months later. And these were stories you know, I confirmed with my father. I said, did that really happen? And he said, yeah, we heard about that. And they invited me to a room similarly. And, and you know, that's why he thought he had colon cancer four years later. I, we don't know, but this is what happens on, in oppressive cultures. So there's a lot of fear and, and paranoia that I'm also seeing here in our culture now, <laughs> unfortunately, as we're facing similar atrocities. So I don't know the history of Romania, but um, what it was the government that was there was a corrupt government, the the Romanian government. So there was a communist revolution that was corrupted by Stalinist revolutionaries and, you know, the ideals of bringing the land to the people to be collectively owned was taken over by individuals who just wanted the land and the nice houses for themselves. So it was a corrupted mm. process that wasn't authentic and and uh, essentially led to um, business owners whose businesses were taken by the government and brought to the state, mm -hmm. uh, or money, you're only allowed to have a certain amount of money, and, and uh, also um, you know, intellectuals were punished as well, mm -hmm. and yeah. yeah. So. so I guess um, talking about the restorative justice certification that you got, um, what you know, what did that look like? How long did you have to study for that? It's you've, you've, you are somebody who is constantly like, just sort of making yourself more knowledgeable about all of these various things. You're so involved with all of these different um, organizations, you know, taking on, I was talking to you when you were going through the, the, the certification process. I know how demanding it was balancing it with work. What did that look like for you? So it was a three college course through Simon Fraser University online. And then following that, I did a circle process training with Kay Pranis, who's one of the foremothers of restorative justice, having learned it from the Anishinaabe people and with permission to teach. And it was, yeah, it was it was very transformative for me personally. Every time you keep a circle, you you get into some real stuff, and and um, 
you know, sometimes people are brought to tears, and myself included. <laughs> it's a safe space where we can practice human rights. And there's a difference between studying it academically and practicing it. So I did some circle processes with Kay Prentice and with um, my training in the field as part of the academic studies. Um, so, you know, I, I, I have had experience in circles with indigenous peoples as an activist, collective decision-making includes being in circle. So that's, that's one way it fit well with my, with my past work. Um, so what were some of the, like, can you give examples of the things that, that were discussed or covered in a, in a circle? So, I mean, there's different types of circles. There's general healing circles, and there's visioning circles. There's trans. There's um, conflict transformation circles. Um, so, yeah, it depends on what's needed. I I did a, a visioning circle with some of my friends in the permaculture design course who were buying land, and that was part of my restorative justice uh, practice. Um, I also participated in a circle with Kay Pranis, generally um, as, a, as a more of a talking circle, mm -hmm. so just to get to know each other and build trust. Mm -hmm. um, well, in, in light of the fact that we're going to be involved in a circle this weekend, um, a, a healing circle for survivors of sexual violence or harassment, um, you know, like the question has come up to me, you know, what exactly happens there, you know, and I think it's, it, um, you know, it's something obviously that our, our culture is very disconnected from because we are not at all like indigenous culture. <laughs> we have this penal justice system. Um, and so people think of that, you know, um, as being the way to resolve conflict and, and I and we've talked a little bit about restorative justice on this show before about a way of transforming conflict, right? So if there's two parties, one who caused the harm and one who re you know received the harm, if there's other language, you can feel free to correct me on that. Um, but in this instance, the circle that we're holding this weekend is more like the talking circles or the healing circles that you're explaining. And if you could just maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so... When you have a harm that was caused specifically, as you were discussing, and you want to transform the conflict, you'll bring the person who was harmed together with the person who harmed, if they both agree to this, and if the person who harmed also shows some remorse and accountability. They come together with their respective communities of care and then some general members of the community to identify and explore what the person who harmed owes, what, what are their obligations to the person who was harmed, and also for the person who was harmed to express how they were harmed so the person who harmed can understand that. And the community as well, they may express their feelings around how the harm impacted their sense of safety in the community. And they may also explore what their obligations were to the person who ha was harmed or the person who harmed, because maybe there was something going on with them that got them to the state that, that the community could have been more watchful over and helped out and intervened um, as neighbors, as family members. 
And ultimately the goal is for healing and growth so that we transform that conflict into something good that builds strength, builds community and creates that security with care as, as we learned in, uh, in the program as opposed to this, you know, fighting terrorism. You know, we can create security with care and love and knowing our neighbors and talking to each other. So um, when we're doing a healing circle, oftentimes it's helpful to bring in people that have been through similar circumstances and have overcome them to share their personal stories. And again, we talk from our own personal experiences because that's what's most transformative. It's our example that teaches best. And those people share, as wisdom keepers, share their experiences to hopefully lend some, some he- healing and guidance to, to those who were in, you know, the current harm, <laughs> to address the current harm. And so that's what, um, we'll, we'll share the link to the event this weekend, but that's essentially what's, what will happen at the circle that we're having um, for, for survivors of sexual violence and, and sexual harassment. Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts as a whole about our justice system. I mean, that's a big question. But when you start to really talk about that, that form of restorative justice that is working on conflict transformation, and which is a separate way of handling really a, a potentially a crime, right? I mean, is that what happens as somebody chooses to go this route of restorative justice versus going to the police with it um, in order to handle that kind of conflict. Am I understanding that correctly? In an ideal world, and this is the world I want to live in. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We would have what I call community-supported justice. So we have little centers of community-supported justice, and people are members, and they all take turns volunteering to be peacekeepers in their community, like the center in Red Hook down in New York City does. Um, and you know, if there is a dispute with a neighbor, they can be like, "Okay, let's go to the community-supported justice center down the block and and talk in circle about this," because clearly we're just yelling at each other over and over again, <laughs> and this might escalate. So. Or we might have a peacekeeper say, hey, why don't we just go down the road here and try to talk with a facilitator and see if we can work this out. Um, So, yeah, rather than call your neighbor, rather than call the police on your neighbor and end up having their children thrown into custody just because they're playing in the front yard because you were a few minutes late getting home because somebody had to go to the hospital and you had to take them to the hospital, you know. (laughs) Like, if we dig deeper and ask questions and talk to each other, then, yeah, we can actually care for each other better and, and, and help each other out rather than get people arrested unnecessarily. Do you think, I mean, the example that you give is, you know, like a petty crime example, but do you think that there's a place for restorative justice in some of those more difficult crimes? Or is the is the criminal justice system kind of always going to have to be in place in some shape or form? I think some groups right now are working on using restorative justice for people who have killed other people. Mm-hmm. And we're, the restorative justice movement is just starting to address that. But, I mean, I think, you know, we have a long way still to get there. Um, and uh, I know that there, in my studies, I learned about a, a jail, a prison in some in a Scandinavian country that was sequestered off on an island, and 
they that those prisons were for the hardened criminals that that had committed murders like crime committed murder so but their their prisons really were more of uh, like a retreat center in a way because they were in a beautiful location and upon arrival they the police officers actually sang songs to them welcoming them and created an ambience of healing and love recognizing that the people who harmed often are very harmed themselves and maybe have never experienced love and kindness and compassion and don't know how to model that so yeah they they actually you know they 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 still have uh, you know an isolating place but they have a more compassionate way of addressing um the deeper issues and and trying to transform that person so they can reintegrate into the population um you know there was a there was a, a shift in in the prison system in the mid 1800s from corporal punishment to locking people away in prison and that was seen as more humane you know people were being put sent to the gallows and they were being whipped on their hands and you know there was actual violence involved so so that happened within 30 years or so and it was a quick shift <laughs> Um, and so nowadays we may be facing a similar shift as well, where we're, we're going from this, this prison system, which ideally we thought would offer some form of, of, um, of uh, transformation or reform for, for individuals, but isn't working, to something more um, compassionate where you can integrate uh, teaching and healing, new ways of relating to, to people who have been harmed through through the prison system so it may still linger mm -hmm. and it, you know we but we might we, we there are people calling for the absolute abolition of prisons yeah as well so that's that's certainly a possibility i'm not i'm not going to say that's not i'm i'm on the um i'm a member of the national lawyers guild and they passed the resolution a few years ago calling for the calling to abolish prisons because they're 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 not working there's a lot of violence there right. in some ways there's still corporal punishment going behind closed doors yeah. as we've seen um actually there is <laughs> through through um the violence there um so yeah i think i think you know we'll have to transition it but maybe they'll be called something else and 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 that there will be a new approach like ho'oponopono is a Hawaiian traditional form of community conflict resolution, which is a circle facilitated by elders and wisdom keepers to get the emotions out of the way and try to find the solution to the problem. Um, so there was a, a psychiatrist, I believe, who went to a prison and and uh, practiced ho'oponopono in the prison and was able to transform a very violent, psychologically harmful environment to something that was more peaceful and productive and people actually could you know reform in that prison so you know maybe we can transform prisons into more restorative justice centers <laughs> as well that would be wonderful just listening to you talking is making me think I mean I really never thought about this like you know and we have this restorative justice practice that comes from indigenous culture because they didn't really have prisons like <laughs> prisons became a thing at some point in history and I've never actually thought about the fact like at what point did that happen and why and mm -hmm. and how you know as we have this tendency to just sort of once something starts we we don't look at it again mm -hmm. and it seems like that's what's happened so I'm glad mm -hmm. I'm glad that there are organizations that are looking at it to, yeah. to try to find a better way um, because as we learn more about trauma 
right? And what happens, what, you know, how people respond to trauma. So many people who are actually committing crimes are experiencing or have experienced trauma. Um, it doesn't mean that they have the right to cause harm to somebody else, but there's a bigger story there. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I read, <clears throat> excuse me, I read on, I think it was um, one of your social media feeds. Um, this, it sounds like a life motto, living justice, the art of evolution by interbeing in earthling micro communities. <laughs> and it kind of sounds like that's just like you are living that like in, in many ways of what you're doing. And, you know, one of the things that you are kind of known for is the, the fact that you practice law, cooperative law, which is, you know, something that's becoming more I guess commonplace in our vernacular is talking about cooperatives as a way of both living and as organizing business. And so I'm I would love to hear how you got involved in that and what what the 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 knowledge is that you have about cooperatives. Yeah, well I thought it was a natural transition for me because I was a workers rights attorney early on right out of law school and then I opened my own business uh, up here in Kingston and then I organized contract attorneys and exposed the disappearing middle class down in the city for temporary attorneys so to me it seemed like an integration of all of my skills to focus on cooperatives and help cooperatives form because as a business owner you have to in a cooperative setting you have to balance equity right so so there's um um there's there's um there's a form there's a way i guess i'm evolving i think we're all evolving and I, i just came back from the sustainable economies law center training um as as a fellow and and saw some of the great work my colleagues were doing around the country and in Oakland, California, and and one of them was a climate justice activist based in Boston who's setting up a uh, a, a sort of cooperative network to help businesses that are cooperatives help other businesses that are cooperatives and and also to work with investors, socially responsible investors to bring democracy into the investing process so that you can you have these circle meetings with the community and they give input and feedback into what they need as a community and the investors or the grant writers will listen and and they'll bring in uh, you know more egalitarianism into the process so so that's 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 and he was an activist as well which people tend to think activists are very you know divided and, and so it's just one-sided but you know we all need to come reach across the table and figure out how we can move beyond the duality into working together to to really uh, bring this ship around. So um, I still consider myself an activist. In some ways, you do need to bring out, as they say in Kundalini Yoga, the 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 knife, you know, to be a soldier when it's necessary to protect yourself and your family and the earth. Um, but but sometimes you can be, you know, mo- you try to be a saint first. You try the the peaceful route first. Um, so so in, it's and I see it as a way to bring back. I mean, when I was organizing contract attorneys you know, with United Contract Attorneys, we were talking about turning it into a cooperative. There was a lot of interest there a few years ago, and and that we as as uh, individual temporary attorneys could then cut out the middleman and 
share the profit equitably between and amongst ourselves. Because the problem was that there was a markup on attorneys who were paid $25 to, I don't know, $100 by the middleman. And then I know for sure $404 by the, the law firms. So while the disappearing middle class's wages were dropping from $45 to $25 in the course of 10 years, the law firm's profits were soaring off of the workhorse attorneys' backs. So, you know, here, you know, this is a potential solution as 43% of the economy is working as freelancers and temporary gig economy workers. This is a solution for them to pool together and take owner control, have autonomy, have independence, have democracy at the workplace, one vote, one member, share the, 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 the wealth based on the work done or equitably even across everybody. And, uh, and you know, um, bring back some of the money from the 1% to the rest of us. Through. Yeah, yeah. I, I think just because I'm sure like the language and the, the story that you just told is not going to make sense to a lot of people who haven't lived it like you have and that I have seen, mm-hmm. you know, that there are the big law firms in Manhattan and in, in the big cities get hired to do this big litigation for the big corporations and they don't have enough in-house attorneys. So then they use contract attorneys that are are found via Um, staffing companies and so there are hundreds and I think it was like in 2008 and people might be like oh you know poor attorneys what was them but I mean this is these are real humans that that um, studied hard to do good work and and were treated very poorly Um, in like 2008 when the, the economy tanked a lot of law firms went out of business and a lot of attorneys had a really hard time finding a job so a lot of them did become contract attorneys. So they would get hired on these big litigations for for paltry sums, where, where the law firm would be charging a significant hourly rate as though they were paying them um, their associate rates of $200,000 a year or whatever it was. And so that's the essence of what was happening in Valeria, organized the contract. Yeah, and there's there's a great woman. I, I, I wish I had her card and her name with me. But at the training, this woman has set up essentially a cooperative business that will have will train and teach other members of different gig economy sectors or freelancers to to form their own cooperatives so they can gig themselves out and cut out the middleman and cut out the online platform. And um, and she's already helped two 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 industries, two different freelance industries, um, and she's you know they uh, the the freelance industry companies themselves, cooperatives themselves, they can become members of the the parent parent company as well and continue to profit off of off of all of each other's work together equitably. Well, so. when you can send me that if you find her information, I'm happy to help share it. Um, because I do think it's really pretty valuable, especially in this area in the Hudson Valley, right? Where, I mean, it's a huge gig economy. There's not essentially a middleman, but I still think it's pretty valuable. Yeah, yeah. But there's also other kinds of cooperatives. There's um, consumer cooperatives, like you mentioned. There's cooperative living as well. And um, and I, I also am interested because I, I like to live cooperatively and I want my, my mission in life is to live sustainably, which is also one of the principles of cooperatives that you help the community, you seek sustainability in, in, in the work you do as a social enterprise. And, um, and I, 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 I believe that if we're all able to 
reconnect with the land, purchase locally our goods, and form little mini eco-villages and, and create community around them, have our own cottage industries, then we can move towards a more sustainable direction. And that's, that's you know, I live with a few people in my house and I'm, we have community meetings every Monday and I'm exploring, you know, how do we create these micro-communities and, and personally take responsibility for what goes on in our immediate neighborhoods. Um, so... What are there any? I mean, I Asia Hudson was a guest on the show once who was one of the individuals around here who I know has transformed her company into a cooperative. And, you know, she had talked about some of the hurdles that she had to go through and just the fact that, you know, you're dealing with personalities and it, mm-hmm. it, it can, it seems like it might take more effort, yeah. but is there ever a moment where, where the effort isn't worth it, you know, for the, the eventual return is that it's a shared existence, you know, do you, do you, have you come up against any frustrations in that realm? Yeah, I think uh, there's so many people who are so noncommittal nowadays, and um, and cooperatives really take commitment. Yeah. And, and as you know, Kundalini Yoga says the key, one of the keys to happiness is commitment. Yeah. You know, it's not having all the choices in front of you that makes you happy. It's actually eating the dinner that you chose already in the yeah. process of eating it, the meal. So um, yeah, I mean, I think there are times when people want to run away and they want to quit. Those are the storming times. But you know, storming isn't bad. That's when you create the processes, the consensus decision making, or use your nonviolent communication or restorative justice to solve those conflicts. And and that practice helps you grow. And then you actually perform a better team. You build a better team so you can perform. So yeah, there's there's moments when I also want to quit, but I remind myself I'm committed to this and Mm. I want to see it through. I need to at least try. (laughs) That's what life is about, trying to fulfill your dreams and, and, and live your dream life. And and, uh, you know, I, I, I want chickens, I want local cheese. And, you know, if I'm going to get some goats, I'm going to need people to help me with that because I can't do it all. And none of us can. And we need to take turns and share in these chores. We can't have six kids to maintain the homestead anymore. So we need to come together and, and, and to live locally and, and, you know, reduce our carbon footprint and help each other figure out how, how to do that and what that means. So... Um, for example, in my house, I'm, I'm trying to create low-income farm worker house, housing for the local food movement and, and, and um, provide reduced rent in exchange for a few hours of work, five hours of work a week so that, you know, we can, we can support the local food movement and also our own efforts to live sustainably immediately and uh, integrate uh, like a new way of, of living cooperatively. That's very exciting. And sustainably. Um, yeah, so it's an experiment. Sometimes, yeah, I do. I want to quit and think I'm crazy, but <laughs> I keep reminding myself I have to keep trying. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I've seen, I've known you for a few years and I feel like as when you put your mind to something, it happens. So Thanks. I would say <laughs> stay true to your vision. Thanks. But it's interesting that you mentioned this idea of commitment. I mean, it's something I was just talking about it in class last night. We were doing a third chakra set, Nabi Kriya, right? And it was all about really establishing that strength in the navel center so that you can you can have commitment, the ability to commit, to be able to do what you want to do, to achieve what you want to achieve or, you know, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. What are, how do you cultivate commitment for yourself? 
(laughs) (laughs) That wasn't on the list of questions. Yeah. (laughs) So I... I try to follow the spiritual guidance. I believed early on that the only way to create social change was through one's individual example. As I read and studied people like Gandhi and um, and I believe that having a daily spiritual practice would help ground me in that um, in that commitment. So that if I could, you know, hold myself accountable to myself and what I saw as my life purpose to a, a greater force, to the universe, to spirit, whatever you want to call it, that then I would be able to um, move forward and make the decisions that 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 I that were necessary to live to live uh, a righteous life. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I I have a daily practice and I meditate and I study Buddhism and I do Kundalini yoga and that even though I may fall off of that sometimes I always come back to that and, and recommit to 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 uh, the decisions I made early on in college when I was still very idealistic <laughs> and I still struggle with that and and just remind myself to to keep trying to maintain that that youthful spirit and vision and um, and uh, yeah it's through it's it's also through talking with my old friends that knew me when I was younger and visiting them and and also like minded people and 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 working through it um, having talking circles every week or every two weeks in my home also helps me work through it so and the purpose of those talking circles in the community is that you know we want to support each other's good work so that's part of living cooperative cooperatively cooperatives are supposed to help other cooperatives and help the social enterprise like you're trying to build a better world Mm -hmm. through your your work so so the idea of living cooperatively is to have a home where you are supporting your good work and making those tough decisions where you may be risking your personal comfort you may be risking your salary but ultimately it's for a greater good and there is faith that the community and the universe has your back to to support that work so just yeah my faith in my faith in people and my family support and my spiritual practice help keep me committed yeah that's important um we you know we have like maybe a few minutes i don't know if there's anything else that you feel like you want to talk about um the one question that i was curious about is how feminine feminism has played a role in your life experiences and i don't know if you have any any stories or any anecdotes that come to mind yeah, well, I'm I'm grateful that I was raised by a very strong woman who was a doctor and believed that women should have equal rights and, and didn't want me to live in fear and sent me traveling to Europe to a youth camp at 17 on my own so I could be brave in the world and explore. And um, so I owe a lot to my, my mother um, who, who helped set that imprint. Um, but yeah, along the way, I've definitely had some challenges and have had, I've seen male colleagues who spoke with authority to their superiors and got away with it. Whereas if I ever deigned to be an authority, I would be um, let go, <laughs> frankly. Uh, and I've also seen uh, myself be shut out of projects where mostly men were doing them or, or all the men were working together. I was the only woman. And then they just, they just started talking to each other and ignoring me outright. 
Um, and of course, that triggers the pain of being excluded by the men who just want to work with each other because they're friends and like to get along. And it's like this clicky thing that sometimes happens and you don't know if it's sexism or not. Um, but it happens a lot <laughs> and you have to question it. So so I was I was fortunate that when that happened on a really major uh, case I was involved in that I helped actually launch and was one of the first on the ground to to pull together a team and fundraise for my colleagues who got retained <laughs> as well that when I when I was starting to get shut out um, I was able to talk uh, um, to King Downing uh, who's the mass defense coordinator of the National Lawyers Guild I'm on the executive committee of the New York City chapter and he helped talk me through it and um, essentially broke it down as a person of color. He understood what it feels like to be shut out, even very subtly, and uh, encouraged me to, to, he empathized with me and helped me understand that that's, what's go- that was, that's what was going on. I was like, oh yeah, like it does hurt to be shut out. And that's why I'm not even emailing them back because eventually you just shut yourself out because you're so hurt and there's so much pain, you don't want to deal with it. So you kind of like, don't deal with it and you walk away but that's shutting yourself out that's letting them win so so he brought me he helped me talk through it and and encouraged me to come back and be active on the case and and I came back and then we took the next step forward and my participation was critical and and they missed me actually it seemed like so so um so I was able to to come back and help when when needed and um and and that helped push me forward and it still happens it happens happening now um, but, you know, another way I've dealt with it is by just saying, you know, to hell with it. I'm going to move on and find another case and another project that needs help now. And, you know, maybe I'll be that first one that, that sparks the fire and maybe other people will take over. But that's OK. You know, I'm still doing the work and mm-hmm. and I've had to call people on it, too. And I've, I've had to 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 to, you know say things like why are they getting paid why am I not getting paid I'm not going to work this way anymore (laughs) you know so so um you know I I don't I don't know that I've always handled it successfully but I think it's important to talk about and to find colleagues to talk about it with and other women colleagues who have experienced similar things and and where there are men who understand and empathize then they can also speak to you and and speak to others and and uh, I've had you know male attorneys uh, who were enlightened that way reach out to me when it looked like I was being shut out and the National Lawyers Guild has a good training for for um, people of color and women and others who are marginalized to to teach each other's attorneys when to see the signs that that's mm-hmm. going on and when to reach out so some of the attorneys you know on the team did reach out to me and and said you know it didn't look like you were treated being treated very fairly you know how are things going and how, how are you going to stay involved and you know, they, they expressed that concern, which meant a lot. And um, then I could come back in when, 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 when you know, we work through these issues. And it's important to talk about them. And, and I, you know, it's, it's some people say that, that, you know, it's maybe my mother says it's, it's unprofessional. But, but, you know, I've, I've, I've at the, at, again, at the, uh, you know, I think that's where the work is. You, you talk about it in the moment. That's when the right. transformation happens. Right. And, and, um, you know, I've learned a lot as well by doing that. And um, maybe sometimes it's not sexism. Maybe it's just uh, something else, you know, so right. you need to call, you need to talk about it and, um, and, and continue to, to work through it. But the, 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 the understanding is that because of these repeat patterns of exclusion, that, that perceiving exclusion is the damage. Yes. 
of that past exclusion. So it's yeah. important to understand when someone feels excluded and thinks it's sexism, that's why. Um, so, you Well, know. bravo to you for being strong enough to bring it up because I think that is the hardest part, you know? It, and, and I'm sure it took some time to be able to step into, stand into that strength um, to be able to do it, to confront people about it. But yeah, I'm still working it out. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the moral of the story is peer support too. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you for your support. Yeah. Well, Valeria, thank you so much for joining today. Um, it was an honor to have you here. You know, my father is an attorney and I kind of grew up with a lot of attorney jokes and attorneys get a very bad reputation. And, um, you are an example of all of the good that attorneys can do in this world. So thank you. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. You're listening to I Want What She Has. On WKNY 1490 Kingston, New York. All right, next up is my interview with Kay Sarah of the band Streetlight Boutique. She is a DJ, she is a mother, and she is an educator. I loved interviewing her. Please take a artist and mother and wife and friend and so all of those questions I'm like yeah I've definitely had moments of all of that right (laughs) yeah um so I am born in Brooklyn New York and then partially raised from an immigrant family Uh, my family's from Haiti and so I lived here until I was about nine, and then we moved to Haiti. My father worked as an agronomist for the USAID, and so we moved back to Haiti for some very complicated and controversial project that he was on. And I lived there most of my teenage years and then moved back to finish like the last couple of years of high school in New York once again. So that being said, being a New Yorker with Caribbean descent and Caribbean roots definitely has a huge impact on me and where I am now. I'm back in Brooklyn, New York, because I wanted um, raising a family and being an artist. I wanted to be in kind of this space that inspired me and that gave me uh, access. I thrive off of diversity and having access to so many different flavors and ways of seeing things from around the world. That's what kind of what keeps me going and fuels me. And so I wanted my children to have that. So here we are in New York City, once again, back in Brooklyn, 
And all of that kind of ties into my musical interest, musical choice. I love world music. As a DJ, I'm constantly integrating world music into my sets. And then as a performer and producer, those fast rhythms, heavy drum lines are all part of, you know, what is included in our music. So, And when you came back to New York, um, when did you start getting involved in exploring your own music? That took me into my adulthood after, not until my 30s did I start exploring my own music because I was terrified of exploring it beforehand. And I was always in the music industry. I started off working in marketing and advertising at the age of 19, right out of high school um, at a record label in Manhattan. And so I was always on the business side of music for many years and then like lifestyle and entertainment and later fashion. I'm kind of like a Jane of all trades. as they say, but creating my own music was just something that I was terrified of. And even DJing, it took my husband, after being married to him for about six or seven years, and he had been a DJ since he was a teen, um, saying, no, I think you could do this too. And my saying to him, you know, I remember uh, we have a close friend, DJ Spinner, who's a well-known DJ, and I would go to his parties in like the 90s and I would sit there and instead of dancing, I would just watch him DJ. Like I would sit back and watch because I was fascinated by the process and the selection of music and the music knowledge and the technical aspect of it all. That I was like, you know, other than like maybe like Beverly Bond and Cinderella, I didn't know of any female DJs. And I was just kind of like, who's going to do that? And we would, I had a group of girlfriends, we would tease that we were going to start our own like all women DJ squad. But, you know, we just never had the (laughs) gumption to do that. So it wasn't until my husband said, you know, well, why don't, I'm going to show you because you have so much music knowledge and then you can just start DJing with me. That's how yeah. you started. How did you get your job at this record label? And what record label were you working for? Uh, I, through a very close family friend who was at the time the marketing manager over at Tommy Boy Music, which was a hip hop and primarily hip hop and like house music um, record label um, in the, I think Tommy Boy spent in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. So yeah, I started off as a marketing assistant, um, advertising marketing assistant at Tommy Boy Records. But how did you get that job? That just seems so random. It was, um, I was right out of high school. I had been doing some data entry and research work for one of the teachers at my high school that was working on her PhD. And I kind of had a tumultuous relationship with my mother and like many teenage women. And being in New York City, I was a freshman at Baruch College, and I was just kind of like, I'm leaving one night, and I moved out, and I was crashing with a friend, and I went to this family friend's house, and was like, um, I call her my cousin, she's like a cousin, and I was like, you know, I just, now I just have to find a job, and she was like, well, you can stay here, and I've been needing an assistant, so I'm going to see if they'll hire you as my assistant, and then you'll go from there, and um, Great. <laughs> You know, so it was interesting because I kind of straddled the line of both scenes, like the underground hip hop street. I I lived in the underground hip hop scene and I worked in the mainstream hip hop scene. So it was a very interesting, like, (laughs) straddle for me. So, you know, it was a very exciting time. I will say that overall, I just remember being 
excited about music, excited about life, feeling very passionate about the change and the shift that was happening in becoming aware of urban life and African-American urban life and what that looked like, the struggles. It started many, catapulted many discussions. I remember many late night conversations in cafes surrounded about lyrics of, you know, different rap songs that were out and artist perspectives and what that meant and how that aligned with what I was studying at the time, because I was also in English lit and African-American studies made, you know, so it was a lot of intersectionality happening for me at the time between music and life and, you know, academia and all of the above. <laughs> um, but I kind of started to despise the superficial nature of the music industry and corporate life. And so I like got up one day and resigned from Vibe and then left for like eight weeks to Haiti at a time when internet was not easily accessible and to intentionally seclude myself from the rest of the world and kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And which I did. And when I came back, I vowed that I would never work corporate again and started off a life as an entrepreneur. So I upped and moved to Atlanta, Georgia. I left New York. I said I wanted like a middle ground between life in New York and life in Haiti, something a little slower, but still moving enough that I wouldn't um, feel like I was being, you know, uh, bored. At the time, I was struggling with like, Rachel, this life that you're living, maybe that's not it. Maybe you need like a more stable, like the American dream. Like you need like a house with a yard and the fence and the space. And like, you need to be doing that. Not like in these like lifestyle industries. Um, so that was my challenge and my thing with Atlanta. But Atlanta has like this underground scene and this pocket of artists, but I feel like it's tiny. Um, so that was wonderful, but then at the same time, the community at large was very racist, very classist, very ageist. All of the isms were there and hyper prevalent. Right. You would see them. Um, and it, it became frustrating because I realized that I lived in this pocket and in this bubble, and if I stepped outside of it, I was going to face severe opposition. And I didn't like the feeling of being like, contained in a community, a tiny community or space. But I, at the end of the day, one of the things that I've always kind of known is that my happiness doesn't lie in anyone else's hands. It's in my own hands. And if I'm not happy, then I'm the only one that can really change that. And so I always take that very seriously that, you know, life is here for us to live. And if you don't enjoy something, you know, you need to figure it out and change it. And so I'm not opposed to change. I hear that. So when you came back to New York with your husband and your child, uh, what did you do next? <laughs> <laughs> I, came back to, I came back to New York with a graduate degree in education because while I was in the South, I was like, okay, I have to live this life. And I have these children and I need to provide them with like benefits and, you know, all of the, the stability. Adulting. And yeah, adulting. Um, and I came back to New York and I started DJing with my husband. Hmm. Um, <laughs> because I hadn't... <laughs> That's adulting. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't yet found a teaching job and I really am 
big on family and and like fellowship and like being with people. I don't feel like we're on this earth just to work. I feel like we're here to produce and to be with others. Yes. And so being away from my family all the time to work, that thought has never really sat well with me. <laughs> So once I realized what teaching really entailed and that it would mean that I would have to be gone eight hours a day from my kids and then when I came home, I'd have to isolate myself to be able to get more work done and prep and plan and at the end of it all, I would probably only have about like one full day a week to spend with my family. I was like, you know what, this is not really what I want with my life was that uh, painful for you because you'd spent so much time in school and preparing yourself to become a teacher it was yeah and, but for like 10 seconds and right. then I said you know what well this is forty thousand dollars that I'm going to dedicate to educating my own children and <laughs> so all of the knowledge that I acquired that's what I kind of put that in. So even till now, I still partially homeschool my children. I send them to public school half the year and I homeschool them the other half the year. Wow. And my other son is going into middle school and I will homeschool him entirely for middle school. So that's how I've resigned. Like I've come to terms with that is just that that money was invested into knowing cognitively and academically what my children need and being able to like propel them and also understanding, helping me to understand the system that they'll be in from a pedagogy lens and knowing when things are not right and not okay and knowing when I need to intervene. One of my joys in life that as a family, we're able to do those type of things together and learn together, grow together, create art together. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing with all our other challenges. That's dope. Yeah. That's really incredible. Yeah. 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 Um, what are some of the benefits that you see right now for homeschooling your kids? Um, I the benefits for us really lie in um, us having an opportunity to teach them. Having children go to school, people think like, oh, the kids are going to school, it's a break. For me, it's not a break. There's so much <laughs> institutionalized nonsense that you have to deal with. I spend so much time at the school as opposed to like taking a break from the kids while they're at school. Um, there's so much like correction that happens while they're in school when they come home from school. Like, okay, I know you learned that, but let me show you the other side okay, I know you've developed this habit and this practice, but I need you to know that that's not okay and we need to work at like undo, un unlearning that. Um, so the benefits of having them homeschool is not having to, one, all of that outside influence kind of like deprogram them. In addition, we explore. So that's the amazing thing about being in New York City and homeschooling. When they're homeschooling, a lot of our lessons happen in museums, happen in, you know, um, minority neighborhoods and very like ethnic enclaves within the city, really kind of trying to give them like a worldly view and a more diverse view of like how different people interact and engage, but within the context of this city. So that's really awesome. I think we've been to every museum that would be considered 
uh, age appropriate for the boys here and have eaten all kinds of foods and shopped in all different kinds of markets and deciphered signs written in languages that we can't read or understand. Hmm. Um, so that's definitely the benefit. And also we've been able to nurture the qualities that they possess that we know will benefit them as adults, but that do not benefit them as children within the context of uh, school environment. So um, our, their artistic abilities, their kinesthetic, kinesthetic approach to doing things, um, the energy that they have as young men, uh, being able to work with them in their ability to communicate and their ability to be confident in themselves, uh, looking at different approaches to doing things like it not being a right or wrong way, but like the end goal as opposed to the process that's been predetermined on how it should be taken, um, taking away the concept of like these rubrics and this is how it should be done and you need to meet these requirements in order to have achieved something. Yeah, all of that being um, kind of dismantled. Those are the benefits for me. And would you uh, encourage other parents to consider homeschooling? I mean, is that something that you think other parents could do or is it a very specific thing that you're doing because I mean, I understand how it's difficult for most parents, you know, that work maybe more traditional jobs to get that done. I think if you, especially if you have children that you realize have exceptional abilities or that you feel like might have um, needs that need to be nurtured or paid more attention to, um, if you have a particular lens that you want them to see the world from, then yes, absolutely. Otherwise, you're really having someone else raise your children when you send them to school. It's, it's, it's the harsh reality. And when my boys are in school, it's something that I accept and acknowledge is that someone else is going to have a huge impact on them because they're spending the majority of their day with that person. Um, so it really depends on what your needs and desires are from your children and from your relationship with your children. For some, it's not as important, you know? And if you're just about like, you know, they say the public schools were designed and it started as like an approach for the common man and being able to educate the common man and prepare them to go out into the workforce. And if that's all your goal is with your children, then send them to public school, save your energy and you know, you go to work and send them to school. But if that's, if you want to have more of an impact and if you have like very specific goals and directions you would like to kind of drive your family life in, then I would, yes, absolutely encourage homeschool. Very cool. Well, so let's talk about your, your music for a little bit. Yeah. Um, you're sitting right now in a vocal booth, right? Yeah. Well, I'm actually in the, I'm not in the vocal booth. I'm in the recording room. So, which okay. is, kind of, yeah. <laughs> so you were saying that you didn't approach music for a long time. And then it was really your husband that sort of brought you out of yourself and um, helped you develop your, your fantasy of an all girl DJ crew and all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
And when did you start exploring music and what did that look like for you? Uh, so I started exploring, not as a DJ, as a performing artist, I started exploring it, I want to say that was winter 2014. Oh. I remember being in a park, lots of snow, standing outside, giving the kids a moment to play outside in the snow, and my husband saying, sing something for me. And I said, stop I can't sing. I told you that already. <laughs> like, stop trying to get me to sing. And he's like, no, I really think I've been creating this music and I have this idea. When I was in my late teens, early 20s, I used to do a lot of spoken word performance poetry. And he says, I listen to your voice all the time and I think it would sound beautiful. Just think of your poetry and just, you know, say it melodically to the music. And I was just kind of like, I cannot do this. Um, and he stayed on me and kept asking. And one day he was like, just come here. Listen, just say this. Can you just say this over this beat? Here's the microphone. Just really quickly. <laughs> and I was like, okay, if I don't go for it, one, you know, I, I'm always kind of like the woman that's like, fear shouldn't stop you. And I had to acknowledge that I was just really afraid. Um, mm. And that he what was you, saying, yeah. he well, was what saying. What is that like, fear? But let's talk about that for a second. So I'm a vocalist too. And I'm wondering, it's such a vulnerable part of our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. The voice. So I don't know. Is that what you were afraid of was being vulnerable and something that you didn't have your strength in yet? Or what was it? I was fear of judgment. I was afraid of judgment. You know, I have these vivid memories of being like seven and I kind of had like this hair of like, you know, this big, big, big hair blown out. And I would stand in the mirror and dress in my mother's, like I would take her undergarments and like dress up and pretend to be like Diana Ross. And I'd fling my, you know, and I put the fan on me and I was ready <laughs> to hit the stage and just do it, you know? <laughs> And that was me as a child. And then I remember this was in Haiti. I was part of a, oh, what is that called? Not like, I, even in New York, I did like modeling school. And then in Haiti, I was at this like, I want to call it like a grooming school. Like we modeled and we, you know, there was dance classes and there were all these different things. And they were having a show. And I said, oh, I'm going to sing Whitney Houston. Wow. Yeah. Right. So, and so I rehearse and I rehearse and I have this beautiful gown. It's a song from the bodyguard. I have this beautiful gown and I'm ready to go. And it's dress rehearsal the day before the show. And I get on the stage and I'm the only one there. And all the other performers are there watching. And I open my voice and it is a damn shriek that comes out. And I was mortified. And I didn't perform the next day at the show. And I stopped singing since. Three years. Um, so it was fear. It was fear of not being prepared. It was fear of how my body would respond to the pressure and anxiety. It was not the inability to allow myself to just be 
free, which I can do in so many other arenas because I'm not afraid to stand in front of a room full of people and speak. And I'm not afraid to take the dance floor in any space and just dance and be free. But for some reason to articulate emotions through like melodic sound was just something that I just felt unequipped to do. Um, And so it really just took my getting past that. And the more and more that I'm in it and the more shows that I go to um, and like just studying different, you know, my, my husband was like, listen, you love Nina. (laughs) Nina Simone was not considered someone with the most amazing voice. You know, Joe, uh, Joni Mitchell, you know, you think of all of these iconic artists and their voices were not like, in that sense, they were not Patti LaBelle, but they had something else that was just so phenomenally rich and deep that you couldn't deny them. And he's like, listen, you can be the Betty Davis of this. You can be like, just, you know, it's, it's about the passion and the emotion behind what's happening. And so that's the, that's where for me, I had to push past, and I am still currently pushing past. It's funny, the other day we were listening to our first project, and I was like, gosh, Rachel, like, you need to come with more emotion on this next project. Like, you have to, I can hear the restraint, you know? I'm like, I have to push past it. So, you know, for me, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time being an artist, being, you know, and, and expressing that and pushing past that fear. Yeah, it sounds like you go into the fear once you find out where it is. Yeah. Well, you know, someone once said to me, it's funny because my husband and I debate on this all the time, but they said it's not, it's okay to be afraid. What's not okay is to let the fear stop you. So I think I kind of live with that now. That I'm comfortable saying I'm afraid. But what I'm not comfortable with doing is allowing that fear to stop me from moving forward. And do you perform live? Yes. Great. Do you perform with an instrument or are you like just singing? Um, I'm mostly singing to backtracks. I'm not going to say it's a little theatrical, kind of like a mini musical. There's a lot of like interaction and dialogue in between songs and we've incorporated a set where I get on the piano. I'm learning how to play the bass. That's something I picked up this year. So that's definitely going to be incorporated more in um, our future performances. But I played on the keys. (laughs) (laughs) That's what my husband says. He's like, there's nothing more sexy than a woman on the bass. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I have the mic in my hand. I move around. I dance. I'm all about fun. Um, you know, I feel like life weighs us down in so many other ways that when it's time to let loose, I am so ready to just have some fun. So, yeah, that's kind of the approach that I've taken to performing. It's just like, I'm here having fun and I feel like my music has like a message and I want to share that message in a way that makes people feel empowered and feel, um, feel good about life and the possibilities. And is it just you and your husband? 
it is just us. Isn't that great? It's me and my boyfriend too. That's <laughs> yeah. Band rehearsals are, are really easy to schedule. <laughs> Super easy. And every time he's like, oh, we need more. And I'm like, oh, it's going to get so complicated once we get a bit. Because he really wants like more live musicianship. And so he's like, no, we need it. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be so complicated. I can yeah. just see it happening. Um, but you know, for us, we have these these young people coming up in the ranks, and my eldest son is a really good bass player, guitar player in the house. So I'm like, suit it up. Yeah, just keep it in the family, man. Yeah. <laughs> right you on. And cool. then, do you do you both DJ together as well? Yeah, absolutely. We DJ as a duo, so that's awesome too. Yeah, it's funny because my boys say they have a job. Like they don't understand that. Like they're like, what do you mean? Like you can't come cause you have to go. Like they understand you have to work, but they don't understand you have a job, like that whole like rigid job thing that they're not, they, they're adamantly against it. Even at a young age, I teach some classes. Um, what do you I teach, te Rachel? I teach, <laughs> I know. My husband and I actually started a program where we teach introduction to DJing through mathematics for yes. elementary students. Yeah. So math, ma applying mathematics to DJing, like understanding like measurements in DJing, measurements in music, like uh, formulas, algebraic reasoning and like ratios and all those type of like elements that come into play when DJing and like comparing music. And so that's incorporated. So that's something we do through the DOE with, um, elementary students, but then I also, through a nonprofit organization, teach middle school students food justice. So I teach them cooking through a food justice lens. My jaw is completely <laughs> dropped. I'm not going to touch the mathematics and DJ school thing. I do have friends that teach DJ school. Um, I think it's brilliant that you've included algebra with that. Um, <laughs> but can you talk about food justice a little bit? Yeah. Um, Food justice is, you know, basically a movement in the social justice movement that analyzes our food and food systems and how it impacts our communities. Um, so, you know, we learn about different diets uh, or lifestyle choices, um, how they impact us and why people choose to be vegan or vegetarian um, or looking at like local foods and sustainability and what that means, looking at um, labor laws, um, lobbyists and like the USDA and how that impacts like our foods and our choices, looking at food deserts and understanding why socially they are where they are and economically why they are where they are and how they impact us from a socioeconomic lens. Um, and then with all of that, like bringing to these young people access to different ingredients so that we can look at recreating foods that we traditionally eat and culturally eat and understanding why we eat them and how they have culturally become so prevalent and understanding how we can adapt those diets and adjust them in a way that is better for us and better for our community and better for our societies and our earth as a whole. Holy moly. Yeah. Wow, I wanna take that class. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because young people just see things so much more from the, the lens is just different. So 
for me, some of the things that are like, make me want to pull out my hair, they're just kind of like, oh, okay. And they're like ready to move along with it. Um, so it's great because they're also way more willing to try things that, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I know that you've traditionally always used this, but like, let's try to use this and see how we feel about it. And like, let's, and so we do it from like a very like inquisitive lens, like looking at, you know, outcomes and predicting, like, what do we think? How do you think you're going to feel about this? Like, what's the difference between this coconut sugar or this date sugar? Um, you know, and what do you think? How would it change the recipe if you use some maple syrup instead? Like, let's just look at all these different things. So it's really awesome. It's, it's, it, and it, it really is, um, for me, very important because, you know, I always talk about like food is our medicine, right? And taking care of that's, that's our primary responsibility is to take care of ourselves. And the easiest way to start doing that is by trying to make the best decisions that you can with the choices that you can about what you put in your body and expose your body to. And so much of that in our current society is sometimes out of our control. So it's trying to gain as much control as we can uh, with what we can, you know? Well, so we're nearing the end of our time. Can I keep you for a few more minutes or do you need sure. to get going? No, I'm all right. I'm all right. All right, cool. Because I wanted to ask you a few of these questions that I sent you. <clears throat> so um, what do you feel like? I mean, you. one of the questions is what's worth working for and what's not worth working for. And it seems like I've gotten sort of a clear view for you as to what's worth working for. But I'm wondering if you have any sense of what's not worth working for. What is not worth working for yeah. is other people. Uh-huh. Prestige what people think of you. So I've gotten to a place where what people think of me is not worth working for. What's worth working for is how I feel. Yeah. And my family, you know, and what I'm able to, the freedom, that's what's worth working for. But the everything else that society tells you that is supposed to like if they come along the way then that's wonderful but my end goal is not going to be that to please others i was just gonna say it sounds like people pleasing yeah um what's one of the hardest things that you've done so far trust myself i i, I guess I, and I really that's it like trust myself I think um, being able to allow trust that I can listen to my inner voice and be on an ongoing hunt for my sense of freedom and joy and knowing that I am intelligent enough and wise enough and strong enough to make it through the obstacles that will come along the way. Thank you for sharing that. How do you uh, do the things that you don't want to do? If there are uh, any things that you don't want to do, <laughs> it sounds like you've created your life in such a way that for the most part, you're feeling good about it. But. Yeah, but there, there's still moments where there are things that I don't want to do or things that I may want to do one day and not want to do another day. Um, I look at the end goal. What is my end goal? All right, tonight I really don't want to DJ this set because I'd much rather go hang out with my friends. The end goal is that I am maintaining 
this artistic freedom overall and DJing allows me to be creative and to pay my bills. So I'm going to go DJ because yeah, this moment that I'd like to do this, that's fleeting moment. But the end goal is that I need to be able to maintain this ability to continue to work in an environment that is uh, refreshing and contributing to my larger goals. Yeah. So something like that. Yeah. Um, for like having a big, broad perspective over everything yeah. and getting yeah. out of your, your feelings maybe. And just, yeah. Yeah. Like I don't want to wake up at eight o'clock in the morning to start the lessons with my boys, but I'm like, Hey boys, we want to go to the beach this afternoon. So we need to get these lessons out the way this morning. Like right. those type of things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Two more questions for you. Mm-hmm. Do you have a spiritual practice? I do not have a spiritual practice in the traditional sense of the word. I am very spiritual. I try to remain very connected. I say, and many people kind of look at me blankly when I say it, but I live my life by the philosophy of my perception of good and bad. Um, If it feels good, I'm with it. And if it feels bad, I'm not. And if it's going to make someone else feel really bad, mm, then I'm going to consider how it makes them feel. Other than that, I don't really have a spiritual practice. I kind of believe in, I'm not an atheist. What is it? There's a word for it. (laughs) I forgot the word. There's agnostic and there's atheism. Maybe agnostic. That's like, I don't. You're not sure what it is. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I definitely feel like there are other I feel like my intuition, like I believe in ancestors and I believe in prior knowledge being like in my DNA and I believe in gut feeling and and instincts and I believe in vibrations and energy, right? All of these things I believe deeply in, but I don't assign to any particular religious or religious thought or spiritual group. Um, So, yeah. I can relate to that. And uh, lastly, I wanted to ask if there's anyone, you know, that's sort of your mentor, someone that you look up to or have aspired to be that's brought you through your life. I, I don't think so. I have a lot of people in my life that I admire for very different reasons. Um, And they bring me inspiration on a daily basis. But there's not this one person that I'm like, oh, I'm going to be just like them. I'm also like very in tune and observant. And so I kind of will, I acknowledge the amazingness in people, but at the same time, I recognize their weakness. So there's no one person that kind of holds that space for me. (laughs) But there are a lot of people that I'm like, oh, like my husband is such a go, like he, the space he's in keeps me going because when I hesitate, he's still going and I'm like, I'm just going to go with him. And then I have other friends that are so like strategic and thought that I'm like, yes, I need to apply more of that, you know, that strategy to like my approach. And then others that are just like, 
so like artistic and carefree and brave and bold that I'm like, absolutely. You know, I look at Holly and I'm like, yes, Holly, (laughs) go with it. And I'm there and I'm supporting and you're like giving me fuel to do the same. So that's how I see it. I just try to look for the beauty in everyone and pull from that in everyone. That's great. That's great. I don't know if you have any thoughts on like anything else that you would want to add. You you know, my thing is you, I will add something. And this is something that I struggle with a lot um, is the, the division with our communities, um, obviously in the climate of what's going on, like just where we are now, for me, I feel like it's really important to support each other, support our sisters, um, and support our brothers as well. Um, and just to be more open, you know, there's so many, so, so many lessons that we've learned about where we should be and who we should be and uh, who we should have relationships with and how those relationships should look. And my thought is just to be more open, more open and more trusting of yourself and of others around you and just develop more community, you know, and not try to break free from the, the norm and the, the lessons that you have subconsciously inherited along the way, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of deconstructing going on right now. Yeah, yeah. And also a lot of language constructing. (laughs) Oh, there's so much language. I can't keep up with the language. (laughs) I can't keep up with it. But, you know, I just think about it. Like right now, you know, my husband and I, like obviously he's like my best friend and we work together. I know, I didn't ask you about that too. It just seems like you guys are so perfectly matched, you know? Yeah, we, you know, we're like any other couple, you know, we've been together for like 12 years now, like any other couple, we have our things, but like, we really are able to do amazing things and really enjoy like spending time together. So for me, that's really wonderful. And so I'm often torn because I get into a lot of spaces where it's like no men allowed. And I'm like, oh, but that means I can't be my best friend. Hmm. But then ironically, my other best friend, like closest is, is also a male. So that's like, always an odd space for me. Um, so I have two really close friends, one a male, one a female. Um, and my female friend is queer. And so then there's like all these, like where you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to and what circles. And I always find myself kind of like an outlier in that, like never fully in a comfortable in what should be considered a comfortable space because of what society says. But just being like, no, these are my people and this is my village and these are my, like, this is, we call it, we're like, this is our, this is the tribe and we keep each other going. And so just being like breaking free from that because it's so easy to get caught into that, into this kind of like homogeneous space of like, you're just with this group or with that group or you can only be free in this space. Like, you know. Like, I don't have to always be around artists. I can be around people who are not artists as well and still be able to, like, flow with it. So just, like, that kind of, you know, freeing your mind of all the constraints. Right, and, like, also just, you know, getting into the fact that we're all human beings on this, like, rock that's floating through space. (laughs) Yeah, 
and it, at the end of it, we all have a lot of the, like, there's so many parallels between our experiences that if you take the time to, like, not focus on the differences and just really talk to each other and get to, like, tune in, you'll realize that there's so much there that, you know, you can connect with and that you can learn and grow from. I hope we're heading there. I hope so, too. I think we are. I said to Holly the other day, I said, it's just about, like, you know, some people go for the masses. I do, I go for, like, one person at a time. You know, in our music, we try to hopefully approach it in a way, you know, and, and you know, send that message in that way. But I'm, like, human-to-human interactions. I talk to you. I talk to someone else. I'm, like, at the grocery store in the line. That's how I'm passing it along, one person at a time. So that's that's what I would say. Don't be afraid and try to move past those constraints. All right, that was my interview with Kay Sarah of the band Streetlight Boutique. DJ, mother, educator, and a force to be reckoned with. Thank you for listening. That street talk that kept me down From the have-nots to the have-a-lots That have a lot and run the spot From the have-nots to the have-a-lots That have a lot and run the spot From the have-nots to the have-a-lots That have a lot and run the spot From the have-nots to the have-a-lots That have a lot and run the spot Backwards to corner stores Get in line and get some more You made your bet, now make your bet Black or red, that's your head Don't be a plane, then plan to lose April Fools are special fools Rumble still skin, pay your dues. Guess my name, we'll see who's who. From the have nots to the have a lot, that have a lot and run the spot. From the have nots to the have a lot, that have a lot and run the spot. From the have nots to the have a lot, that have a lot and run the spot. From the have nots to the have a lot, that have a lot and run the spot. Work hard every day, buy a spot, that's how they play. They the have nots that don't have a lot, or I'm have a lot that run the It was snowing here this morning. I don't know if it was in Kingston, but out in me, by me in the boondocks, there were flurries. Whew. Okay. I got to go back to our hotel. I left something in our room, Mike. All right, cool. Um, Cool. What a great show today. Yes. Amazing women. It never ends. I mean, obviously, it, it won't ever end because <laughs> they'll just keep being born and doing things. Um, self-care. You wanted to talk a little bit about she's all fat. The she's all fat podcast. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's important to preface it with that. Sorry, I'm just looking at the text from our website and it says she's all fat is like highlighted and underlined. So that's what my brain went to. Oh, it doesn't say podcast after that? It's not underlined. It's not highlighted. So. Okay, yeah, because it's called She's All Fat, but it's a podcast. Yeah, I was listening to it and uh, they do a self-care section, which is awesome. And their self-care section, they have, they, they actually have, and note to listeners, they have people that call into their show and leave voicemails. <laughs> So at some point, hopefully, we can ask our listeners to do that again, because that was really fun. Yeah, I like um, that. And one of their callers said, you know, that most of the time, women that are bad at self-care are actually good at taking care of others. Mm. And so if you're really good at taking care of others, but really bad at, like, finding time to take care of yourself, the trick is to think of yourself as an other and be your own best friend to yourself. So, you know, you're you're fitting your own self into your schedule of caring for others, being that you are also an other. So I, I really liked that a lot. I thought that was a great tip. That is, I mean, I feel like that's a, it's, um, I mean, as somebody who has a yoga studio, right, I, I see people who are trying to take care of themselves all the time. And then not coming in after a few weeks and going, I was just so busy and, you know, I, I totally get it. And, and, um, but, and I don't know, I, I think that's a great tip. It's like, how do you actually carve the time out for yourself? I think one thing I will say, like to Valeria's point earlier about commitment, it's like really tr figuring out how do you make that commitment for yourself? Like, what is it that you need to do to trick yourself into it? Um, until it becomes such a habit that you don't have to anymore. It's, you know, it's creating a new habit. And I don't know the psychology about why the habit is so hard to create, but, um, but that's the essence of it. Like today, I could have done a million things. I should have done writing for my novel, but I forced myself to just go for a walk because I've created a new habit that I lost about walking enough. Yeah. Um, and it's like I had to just let go of the fact that certain things weren't going to get done today and that's fine it's funny It's I mean I hope this isn't inappropriate to say but it's reminding me of being like back in the day when I was a really heavy drug user <laughs> because my first thought was there just aren't enough hours of the day and then I was like oh yeah that's why I did crystal meth for years because I just never wanted the days to end so yeah. I could just keep getting things done yeah oh my goodness yeah don't do crystal meth <laughs> okay this is not <laughs> this is not what we are advocating that was the wrong thing to do no I was really uh <laughs> angry at our bodies that we needed sleep and and that, you know, we have to stop. So anyway. Yeah. I mean, I was up at like five this morning because I'm like, I got so much to do today. I just got to get up and do it. And I'm like on the couch half falling asleep be at seven because I'm, I didn't get enough sleep. And, oh, and uh, Ben comes downstairs to make his morning coffee. And I was like, I need coffee. And it's something I try not to drink, but I just did it. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of those things, I guess. Great self care. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
a little bit of coffee is okay. No crystal meth. Um, so I guess we're almost out of time. That's our show. Yeah, that's our show. Yeah, where's our outro music? I almost did the Batman theme instead. Batman. Um, all right, so our show was engineered by Manuel and Nate. Really, mostly Nate. Manuel was there helping out. Um, you heard music. You heard music from myself. Sorry, I took over. Shana Polana and Streetlight Boutique. Next week, we have a special guest, Nada Kudlova, who is a dance therapist. And Shauna, who's interview. I have Rachel Pazdan. I have Rachel Pazdan, who is a promoter in New York City. Music promoter. Sweet. So right. until next week, love, love yourself, yourself and uplift and one, one another. another. Bye. Ciao.